Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Quality Care Talks. Sponsored by the Health Facilities Association of Maryland, HFAM, Quality Care Talks explores leadership, innovation, and the critical issues facing long-term and post-acute care providers serving Marylanders in need. Whether you are a provider, vendor, or consumer, Quality Care Talks will help you navigate the complex and ever-changing healthcare industry. Tim Culp from Mind Over Machines, thank you so much for making the time to join us today. Thank you for having me. I Look, you've got an incredibly interesting story. I'm interested to hear more about it, and I'm sure the people listening today want to hear more about it as well. First of all, tell us a little bit about Mind Over Machines, where you work as the Director of Emerging Technologies. Sure. So Mind Over Machines is a technology consulting firm. So what does that mean is we help businesses to look at their you know, business problems and determine, is there a technology solution to help with that? And we really focus on CRMs, business intelligence, and custom development to solve business problems. Well, I'm excited to talk with you today because you started out on the one hand as an IT guy coder but you have this healthcare background, right? Right. Yeah, actually all by accident, which is kind of was not the plan to get into healthcare, but uh, went to work with this company, Frontier Medics, that was like an international 911 center where people are traveling and you, know, you are in a car accident or you break your leg, you would call our call center and we get you the medical care that you need. They were acquired by United Healthcare, which really dug into the world of healthcare and literal world because we were in the global division. So you actually started as an undergraduate at McDaniel College, and I'm fascinated that you majored in religious studies and art history. Yes, I religions and world religions in particular have been a fascination of mine ever since I was in high school, actually. I was really into mythologies, uh, Norse mythology and Egyptian mythology specifically. And as I started learning more about these different cultures in the world, and they're extremely different, but sort of similar religions in how things work together, it just was a passion of mine. And in art, uh, I've always been very into creativity and creating. And so art history is all about how do you apply that culture with the creativity and what's the meaning of what you're looking at. So it's really understanding people, understanding meaning, and driving that to all kinds of creative endeavors. I've got to think that that understanding of symbols, meaning, and context really helped you as you decided to sort of make a left or a right turn and study applied information technology at Towson. Yeah. Actually, my advisor for religious studies is who got me started onto software development. He had a project he was working on and he said, I need a website. And, you know, knowing that I wanted to get into technology, I said, I can make a website. At the time, I could not make a website, but, you know, I figured, <laughs> how hard can it be? And so I got a book. And sat down and started reading about how to build HTML websites and kind of took off from there. But the key thing that religious studies and art history gave me and liberal arts education in general, uh, I'm a big proponent of liberal arts education for technology professionals, is how to understand where people are coming from, understand what they're trying to achieve, and then what are the tools that you need to pull together to deliver that. 
Well, you know, there's a lot of incredible power built in those statements, right? You know, I'm all about effective leadership, not good leadership, not bad leadership, but effective leadership. And effective leadership leaves clues. And you've left many, many clues there. So when the professor wanted a website, you had no idea how to do it. But you said, you know what? I can. And you established a reach goal and you came up with a methodology to learn how to do it. And you focused on the outcome, right? So effective leaders begin with the end in mind. And there you were as this young emerging leader um, doing all those things. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, in, as kind of a, a funny side note, at the time I was working at a secondhand bookstore that nobody ever came into. And we had a whole bunch of computer programming books. And so while I was waiting for nobody to come into the store, I'd be, you know, wiping down the shelves, ordering the books or reading, how do you build a website? Uh, because no wasting right. of time, there's tons to learn in a bookstore. You were getting paid. You were technically getting paid to learn in that environment. On the job training, except not for that job. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best kind of on the job training. So is it fair to say as you started in information technology that you could be defined, and I don't want to define you in a limiting way, but you could have called yourself a coder back then, right? Oh, absolutely. When I first started with technology, I found web development very interesting. And, and keep in mind, this is late 90s, early 2000s, uh, where the web was, Google was just getting going. And so the web was this wild frontier where going into development shops and talking about web development, a lot of people were still not sold on the idea. So really building these web applications, code, getting into the code, understanding it, but also being able to set up the server, understand how network connections work. That was all part of the deal. It wasn't this, I just do one part of development. Now, if you wanted to get a job, you had to do everything. Well, so let me ask you a question because I've taken a couple of those left and right turns in my career as well. And in my world, one of my big sort of success factors, and I'm so much filled with gratitude for it is I had really great mentors. Did you have a mentor or a group of mentors that helped you as you evolved in this way? So I did not up until working and, and just to, to level set, I don't count a manager as a mentor. I really see a manager as that's who you're reporting to. That's, you know, their role is to help you make sure that you get the job that needs to be done, done. They're not necessarily there to grow your career. Sometimes they are, but in a lot of my experience, that wasn't quite the case. I've been fortunate that when I was with United Healthcare and Frontier Medics, that my manager there was an exceptional manager who really helped me develop my leadership skills and how do I form a team. With United Healthcare, I was working with this management team that were from Accenture and had just these great track records of success and really were able to operationalize how do you run a technology team. So very fortunate there. What I haven't had is somebody who's not in my direct reporting structure being a mentor. And so that's one of the things I try to reach out to the community in Baltimore, the technology you know, young hopefuls, and say, Look, you're not reporting to me. You're, I'm not managing you. How can I help you grow your career? Because you know, if somebody would have helped me with that, wandering kind of, how do I figure this career path out? You know, I feel like I could have figured it out faster and been well on my way sooner. But there's lots of young talent that's just looking to grow. 
Yeah, it's really interesting. So look, I would argue that uh, in my experience that I've had managers who were mentors, I think they can be mentors. I think it's really interesting and admirable that you really haven't had an abundance of manager mentors, but clearly you place a lot of importance on you yourself being a mentor to your colleagues in the tech community. Yeah, absolutely. Growing up, I there was no concept of uh, computers and and how they're going to work with us. And so, you know, going out and saying, I'm going to do a computer career, you know, it was really yeah, no support to, to know how to navigate that world. And a lot of the, the kids, I, I say kids, but the 20 something uh, people that are that I'm working with are in the same boat. They're career switchers or they didn't go to college and they're looking to build a technology career. And so having somebody that can help them navigate you know, well, should you be looking for? What are the questions to prepare for? How do you know a recruiter is there to help you and not just throw you in any open slot? These are great questions and discussions to have that help people avoid these pitfalls. Wow. So you really do help people, or at least it sounds like you try to really go out of your way to help people to ask the right questions. Yeah, absolutely. Knowing how uh, in, in a technology career, you often are working with recruiters to help you find the the right placement for a job and knowing what questions to ask the recruiter, but also knowing what questions to ask the employer and how do you build those relationships. There's this missing component with a lot of the people I work with, with mentoring of understanding how important relationships are. They think, you know, well, I'll just go out and apply. And it's like, well, you can, but it's easier to apply if you have that relationship and they're already watching out for you. So it's really focusing on relationship building, what questions to ask, and who to connect with. Right. So you bring up another incredibly important point, and that point is that relationships matter. Oh, absolutely. They are. When I first started my career, my wife always jokes, uh, as much as I put emphasis on relationship now, is I made statements like, I'm doing this on my own. I'm not going to leverage my relationships. I don't want to be one of those people. But the reality is, those people, you know, having that relationship is opens doors that you won't find on your own or you wouldn't even know to look for. Right. You know, so one of one of the things I want to bring to the conversation today about relationships is a reoccurring theme in my professional and personal life that when you initiate and build a relationship, oftentimes you don't know what will be the full impact of that relationship until years later. So there was a time when I had a relationship with a manager in the university system. And it was an important relationship. It was a friendship. It was a quasi-professional relationship. And probably more than more a friendship. I wanted it to be, at the time, more of a professional relationship. And it just wasn't in the cards. It just wasn't, the time wasn't right at that point in my career for that to be the case. And then years and years later, there was really a, a large project that I became involved with. And I was working with that person's boss's boss's boss. Like I was engaged at a much higher level of the organization, not from a place of ego or anything, it's just sort of the way it worked out years later. And that relationship of the manager who at that point in the work at hand reported much lower on the organization chart 
that relationship that was formed years earlier, that turned out to be a critical success factor in our work. And there's no way that I could have predicted it years earlier when we were friends and I wanted us to be more professionally involved and we weren't and I regretted it. There's no way you would have been able to tell me at the time, well, years from now, you're going to operate at a much higher level and this relationship will be one of your critical success factors. I wouldn't have known it. Yeah, absolutely. And and same here. I, I can think of how I got my first job in technology with uh, advertising.com was being at the right place and running into somebody I worked at a grocery store with while I was in high school. And uh, she was transitioning out of this company. At, at, she was transitioning out of ad.com and was like, hey, I know they're looking for people. Would you be interested? And you know, she knew I was into computers. This is how it was phrased at the time. And so you, know, you <laughs> never know who you're going to run into that is that it is that connection that you needed at that time. You know, luck favors the prepared. Absolutely. So what are you reading right now? I'm always intrigued to ask people what they're reading. Yeah. I've been on this reading kick with my daughter's school. They're encouraging, you know, they're on a readathon now. And at the end of last year, it was similar. And right now, a book that I'm reading is called Humans Need Not Apply, rereading it. Uh, it's a great book. And the author is escaping me at the moment. But it's basically talking about the economy and you know social conditions that occur with artificial intelligence as our coworkers. And what does that look like? You know, when you're you know, coworker that you work with every day is not a person. Should we be afraid at this point of artificial intelligence? It's funny because whenever I give a lecture about artificial intelligence, I always have two slides. And one of them is a quote from a early pioneer of artificial intelligence that says, you know, something along the lines of whether the question of whether a computer can think is no more useful than asking if a submarine can swim. And then the second, which kind of sets people's mind to, let's not even worry about can they think because in all, for all purposes, they can. And the second slide is a picture of the Terminator. And I always say, no, we're not near Skynet. You know, <laughs> we don't have to, we're not there yet, but we need to handle with care. This is a technology that's extremely disruptive to all industries, but also to all socioeconomic classes. And if we're not careful, you know, we're not going to put the right levers in place to make this a social benefit. Because as AI automates what we would traditionally call blue collar jobs, you know, people are going to say, well, yeah, that happens. But AI has the potential to be automating white collar jobs, like legal jobs, like doctors jobs. And so we need to think about, well, what is this new world we're building? How do we skill up for it? How do we educate and bring up people into this world and not just let people get sidelined? You are listening to Quality Care Talks, produced by the Health Facilities Association of Maryland, HFAM. We'd like to invite you to join us at the HFAM Leadership Institute on May 3rd, 2018 at the Hotel at Arundel Preserve. Sponsored by WGL Energy and Medline, the Institute's keynote speaker will be Maryland Secretary of Commerce, Mike Gill. To register for the HFAM Leadership Institute, please visit www.hfam.org. And now back to the conversation. So you talk about a couple of things. You talk about levers and intersections. You talk about the lever of artificial intelligence and the intersection of that 
as a social lever for education. So tell us a little bit more of how that applies going forward. That intersection of artificial intelligence, for some reason I have trouble saying, and the social lever of education. Oh, absolutely. So anytime you have technology, uh, reading is a great example. Before the Gutenberg Press, reading was not a generally available skill. There was an isolated group who worked with that, who did that reading thing. But when the Gutenberg Press came along, reading and the ability to have content to read exploded. And people were able to start looking at, in the Protestant Reformation, started looking at the Bible and, and saying, okay, well, what is this thing? What are we working with here? Just as an example. Now we fast forward to modern day and we say artificial intelligence, you know, we have self-driving trucks. Well, what does that do to the truck driving industry. My dad is a truck driver. You know, we're, we are watching that. He told me years ago, hey, we're, we're almost there. And I, I remember laughing it off and be like, whatever, dad, you know, we got plenty of time and people won't let it happen. You know, we're going to stop it because we don't want to lose those jobs and everything. But what happens there is the self-driving cars show up and it's, yeah, we, we, this would be a great way. We can run 24 hours a day. We don't, you know, we're going to reduce shipment costs all these benefits. But then what happens to the truck drivers? Well, we scale them up. We figure out how do we make them productive members of society when we just automated their core function as a jo for a job. So artificial intelligence, as it's automating and as it's changing the world we live in to be delivering things autonomously or process-driven that you know we're not even seeing these things happen, it just magically appears, that is a great lever to say, okay, we either can let these people not have jobs or we can bring up these people who have, are getting automated out of a job and have them building the new future. And truck driving is a great example of, you know, we have this industry that's going to be massively impacted and there's so much potential in the people that are impacted to really change how we think about, you know, logistics and transportation. You know, that really, your explanation really resonates with me and I can draw upon one of my experiences as an executive and leader at AARP. The reality is that we already have industrial and post-industrial models for this evolution of workforce that exist prior to this sort of intersection of AI and social lever of education. And one example really comes to mind. There was a best in show world-class utility company employer that we highlighted when I was in AARP's leadership. And what made them a world-class employer in the utility space is they would track their employees uh, affirmatively. They would track and, track and navigate affirmatively their workforce's evolution. So it could be that, that somebody would come in and they would be trained as a line pole worker and they were young and, you know, they climbed up and down poles and they dealt, you know, in really sort of dangerous situations. And they, while they were doing that, this employer built their skill set, their technical blue collar skill set and said, well, maybe, you know, you'll learn some switching functions. And so you can spend more time at the foot of the pole eight or nine years from now. And then they would get those same employees involved in traditional education and help them to earn degrees so that they could work in another part of the operation and transition from the blue collar work. And then maybe some of them, they would involve 
in leadership training and say, well, you have what it takes now to understand an integrated approach to what we do as a business from management, from line employee to other aspects of the business. We want to evolve you as a leader manager. And this was like a real company 20 years ago. And it was extraordinary how they did that. And I, as a leader who solidly is in really two spaces, right? Healthcare and leadership, and increasingly a third space of workforce development, I'm excited with the role that AI and knowledge can play in scaling this workforce evolution, both in terms of human potential on the leadership side, but also specifically on the healthcare side. Yeah, absolutely. And when you think about automation and you know, the job that I have today didn't exist when I was a kid. You know, it, it, it really, you know, this whole concept of emerging technologies, that's, you know, having people that are watching that and saying, here's what we're doing with this, with artificial intelligence, you know, that wasn't a common job 30 years ago. With that said, you know, who knows the jobs that AI is going to produce? And if we use, apply artificial intelligence to job building and career development where systems are automating, well, here's the skills that you should consider for your future careers based on what you like to do and what you've done in the past. You know, I think there's a huge potential there. Well, I am, as a healthcare leader, I am super excited for the potential of AI on compliance, on medication compliance mm -hmm. and scheduling of follow-up appointments and activity and engagement compliance. Did somebody search for their gym? Did they actually engage in a route and go to the gym? Are they getting out with family members? You know, are they taking their meds when they had to have a follow-up appointment or a follow-up test? I'm excited on the role that AI can play on compliance and utilization in healthcare because compliance and utilization result in better outcomes and better outcomes results in a more engaged population, people that can continue to give, contribute to others. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, there's a couple startups here in Baltimore that are specifically focusing on what you're talking about with medication adherence and using artificial intelligence with computer vision, which is the computer seeing what the person is doing via the camera and then interpreting, here's what's going on here. So you train it to know what it looks like for somebody to take medication and you would have the user taking a picture of them taking the medication and that creates this adherence. So there's a lot of energy right now just in Baltimore to deliver some of these great values, much less Silicon Valley and all these other places. So, Tim, I think some of the people listening will be surprised by this, but my sense as somebody that has this background in healthcare, public policy, and association leadership, I think that healthcare has really been sort of a later adapter on the concept of mega data when you compare it to other industries. Would, would you say that's true? Yeah, I would agree with that. There are some companies that are pursuing big data projects and healthcare companies and really focusing on that now, but that's new. That's fairly new. There's a lot of these companies, these healthcare companies, though, when you think about the volume of data they have, it is staggering to think about personal medical records and how big those are. The challenges there are we have these big data sets, but they're dispersed. Right? This hospital system has some information. This insurance provider has some information. This insurance provider has other information. Fitbit has some information about you. How do we pull it all together 
to deliver a big data set that we can actually use for actionable intelligence. You know, I want to ask this question. I've been sort of sitting on the edge of my seat to sort of tee this up for you. How would you, you know, in my mind's eye, the distinction between data and knowledge is so powerful, right? Mm -hmm. So how would you make that distinction between having this vast sea of data, but have it then be actionable knowledge? Yeah. So I used to work with a security company, a physical security company that had an intelligence team. And they described the difference between data, information, and intelligence or knowledge kind of as this is data is just the point, you know, five. That's data. Doesn't have any meaning, doesn't have any context. Information is putting that data in context to say, okay, five, you know, cars or whatever, five, whatever. Intelligence slash knowledge is knowing what that means. So you have five cars, but you're expected to sell 10 you know, or whatever the kind of scenario you want to create is. So what does it mean when you have data, you have all this big data, that's great. You have lots of big data, but without the knowledge and the, you know, uh, it's often referred to as business intelligence and with artificial intelligence, now we talk about predictive analytics, without that knowledge, without that business intelligence, you just have a whole bunch of data you're sitting on. And so what we need to drive to is we have these data sets. Now let's actually do something with them. Let's make them usable. And how do you do that? Well, you have a BI strategy, a business intelligence strategy to say, this is how we're going to build knowledge from all this data we've been fighting to amass over you know, the last X number of years. So those folks who are listening to our podcast today and who are driving in their car and they're looking down at their radio dial that's feeding them this media on their radio dial, working from left to right then on the dial, the left side of the dial is just raw data. And the middle part of the dial is data with context. So the left side is five. The middle is we understand what five means, but the right-hand part of the dial where all the power is, is understanding the impact and the potential of that data. So it's raw data, contextual is in the middle of the dial, and on the right is understanding and it's actionable. Is that right? You got it. And we, as business people, we always want to get to the right. But to get there, you got to have a strategy for the left. You know, how are you going to get this data and pull it all together and have it be actionable? And then to get to the right, you got to know what do you want to ask? What are you trying to do here? You know, there's a lot of people who have this, if you build it, they will come kind of mentality for actionable knowledge, but that's not really the case. You have to know what you're looking for to even ask the right questions. So there's so much in what you just unpacked. It reminds me of another effective leadership attribute, and that is effective leaders don't have all the answers. They understand the right questions. Yeah. And and I would add to that, build their team to help them grow that knowledge. Right. So effective leaders build teams that are smarter, faster, bolder, right? Absolutely. So you're also really high on Baltimore potentially being the Silicon Valley of the East. Yeah. Tell, tell us about that. Yeah. So, you know, the kind of, the, there's a really good book, Creativity Inc. by Ed Catmull, who is the founder of Pixar. Uh, and a lot of people are like, there were three founders of Pixar. It's like, well, 
you read the book, it really sounds like there was one guy who got it started and other people helped. But uh, he talks about the scenarios that led to Silicon Valley being this place of engineering and you know value that really drove creativity there. I see Baltimore as a very creative place where you look at our institutions for education and you know how art does play a significant role in Baltimore City and how uh, creativity plays a significant role in Baltimore City. That's the fuel of the next technology revolution. Uh, it is mathematics and engineering skills will always be needed to build you know, the artificial intelligence systems. But when you look at cloud computing and what cloud computing really enabled, it's not just about, oh, I can put my server on the cloud. Yay. What it enabled is services built by armies of engineers to be able to be used by small businesses at low cost. And so you can spin up your own computer vision service through a cloud platform and be building your business on artificial intelligence platforms that are out there at low cost. Now, what does this mean is that is low cost with a low barrier of entry where technology is getting out of the way. Creativity is the driving force of business and how creative can you be to deliver these great solutions? And I, you know, I've been to many cities and I, I do strongly believe that Baltimore is one of the most creative cities I've ever been to. Yeah, I would add to that. I think you've nailed it. I think if Baltimore is a stock, it's a heavy buy right now. I think it's only going to appreciate. I think it's going to appreciate for some of the reasons that you say. Um, I think creativity is a huge factor in that. I think diverse workforce is another fa factor. I think young workforce is a factor. I don't think you can be successful going forward in uh, the United States without having a worldview, having a diverse workforce that's creative engaged and highly educated. And Baltimore has the potential for all of that. Add to that, we have some of the greatest healthcare delivery and research institutions in the country. Uh, and we also have some of the best public and private universities in the country. And finally, we're the home to a large intellectually based part of the US Department of Defense and that apparatus. And so you think you've got all that going for you. And, and I think proximity matters, mm -hmm. right? The fact that we're just a couple hours down the road from the financial sort of headquarters of the United States and arguably the world, and we're literally 45-minute drive from Washington, D.C. Yeah, absolutely. And the real – you look at the educational institutions around and they have a very good focus on education and building out leaders. You know, one thing I would encourage people that are interested in technology careers is don't forget liberal arts. There is a lot of value there to understand the world. And to your point, Joe, when you were saying about the worldview, bringing that in to a technology problem really – provides uh, a unique perspective that people really resonate with. I would agree with you. And I guess, you know, for another podcast and another time, I think the discussion on our opportunity and obligation to rise all boats in primary education and to really make a difference and understand the potential of all of the young people in Maryland across diverse backgrounds. I think we're doing well but there are areas where we could do so much better. Mm -hmm. And to the extent that we could do better, 
Baltimore specifically, but Maryland in general, because it's not just Baltimore right. where we could use improvement. There are other parts of Maryland where we could use improvement. If we could embrace that and just say, we can do better than this, then I think we could be competitive with other capitals, not just, not government capitals, but capitals of creativity, using one of your terms, from around the world. Yeah, absolutely. And I agree. You know, we tend to talk a lot about Baltimore City, but just throughout Maryland, there is a lot of potential whether, you know, you can talk about some of the innovations in ag science that are happening that are just amazing that, you know, we've seen in some of the startups in throughout Baltimore, throughout Maryland, or you can talk about some of the, you know, defense contractors that are based in Western Maryland that work in Northern Virginia and just lots of great creative potential and a lot of ideas that, you know, are ready for harvesting. So you described yourself in the beginning as a coder. How would you describe yourself now professionally? I try to describe myself as air quotes futurist. <laughs> um, and really you know, the difference being is that, you know, not being as hands-on in, in the code, which I still love to get hands-on in the code. And you know, I have my open source projects that I work with and bug fixes and stuff like that. And I do enjoy that. But really looking at the social, economic, political, technological levers that are building tomorrow, you know, as we talk about social media and how it has, I mean, massively disrupted the elections uh, for U.S. elections, and I don't mean any meddling or anything. I'm not talking about that, but I'm talking about how candidates are using social media to get their message out or how causes are using social media to get their messages out. As we build artificial intelligence and different platforms to deliver even more on using technology and changing social conditions or social conditions that impact technology, like Bill, you know, if there's a bill to ban or tax artificial intelligent workers, now we have a very interesting cocktail of, well, what's tomorrow look like? Powerful, powerful stuff. So is there a question that I haven't asked you today that you're thinking, I've got to ask, I've got to talk about this. There's something I'd want to add to the conversation. I would just encourage everyone to really take a look at yourself and say, do I have a few moments to mentor somebody through LinkedIn or through, you know, it's just email communication doesn't have to be a heavy time commitment, but, you know, going to events, you know, meetups and, and meeting people who are starting their careers and really trying to make something, help them out, like just reach out and, and have that relationship with them to grow their career. Because I'll tell you, as much as, as I help and try to help my mentees, I just feel great about it. And, you know, it really, at the end of the day, you know, is a very great feeling to have. Well, Tim, I, um, as I said, you know, I have sort of my professional life solidly in two areas, leadership development and healthcare. And I just want to tell you, as a, a person who develops and helps leaders to develop and has the opportunity to work with some incredibly gifted leaders across all sectors, I would tell you, you can remove the air quotes from your title futurist. Well, thank you. How can people reach you at uh, Mind Over Machines? Uh, you can email me at uh, tculp, K-U-L-P, at mindovermachines.com, or anyone can hit me up on LinkedIn. I am a huge fan of LinkedIn and on there frequently, so please uh, connect with me and let's chat. Tim, I cannot thank you enough. This has been a powerful conversation on today's podcast, and 
a bunch of people are going to benefit from it. Thank you so much for making the time. Well, thank you for having me, Joe. Be well. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Quality Care Talks. We would love your feedback on today's episode. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes. And don't forget about the upcoming HFAM Leadership Institute on May 3rd, 2018. Register today at www.hfam.org. We hope to see you there. Quality Care Talks is produced by the Health Facilities Association of Maryland, the state's oldest and largest association of skilled nursing and rehabilitation centers. For more information, visit www.hfam.org or send us an email at hmorris at hfam.org.